would like to preface my talk today by saying, every now and then, I feel like I'm going to push the envelope a little bit in ways that I'm uncertain what I'm pushing on. And today, <laughs> I get a thumbs up from one of my board members, so that's a good sign. Today is going to be one of those. So the preface is this. If you've been around Spark, you know that what happens up here, what is said from this space and during this time, is our offering an invitation to you to wrestle. It is not the divine command and divine word of what Spark believes in and everything of what we you know, say is the absolute truth about us. It is an invitation to wrestle, to think, and to consider. And so as we go through this, I can imagine some of you are going to say, but wait a second, but wait a, wait a second. And I want to acknowledge and recognize that at the end, I'll open, uh, try to leave some time for Q&R, some question and response, because I actually would love to hear what you think. Um, because this community has blessed me uh, by your wrestling and your thoughtfulness in ways that I uh, never had in a church experience before. So I want to make sure that you are invited into that tension. So I'm going to offer you my best study and thoughtful uh, engagement and wrestling with all of this stuff, and I want you to push right back. Okay, so that's, that's the deal. Do we have a deal? Okay, do we have a deal? The title of this uh, message is Introduction, These Sayings. And the reason why is because the book of Deuteronomy is actually not entitled Deuteronomy if you are looking through a Jewish lens or the original title of the book. The original title of the book is these sayings. That's the original title. The book of Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy comes from the Greek word deutero, which means second, nomos, which means law, second law. And I'm going to get to why that's important and critical to recognize what the titles are and why they mean what they mean and how we can think about things differently. I want you to take 60 seconds, if you would, and turn to your neighbor, and if you're an introvert, just look down. Um, <laughs> which is what I do all the time. Don't make eye contact if you're an introvert. But if <laughs> I want you to, 60 seconds, can you answer this question? What in your view, in your perspective, are the most critical and most important challenges facing humanity today? If you were to just put on the board the most important, most critical challenges facing humanity today, what would they be? 60 seconds, go. Time. Okay. This side of the room, this is really wild over here on this side of the room. This side, of the room, just go, just Poverty. climate change, Poverty. Poverty, violence, lack of compassion, lack of compassion. individualism, racism. <laughs> racism, ooh, mental health, classism, religious strife. Greed. I'm sorry? Division, divisiveness, divisiveness. Okay, this side of the room. You're left with nothing now. So, <laughs> anything to add to that? Wealth inequality. Ooh, that's an epistemological question. What is real truth? Clarity of truth. What is truth? That's an epistemological. If you want to be, sound really sophisticated, just say, oh, that's a nice epistemological question there. Yes. Uh, what is truth? The clarity of truth. Anything else? Sexism. Sexism. Uh, isms. Blank isms. <laughs> just fill them all in. Okay. Pa oh, power in leadership. 
was having a conversation this week with somebody about power and how power corrupts. And Dr. Keltner wrote this amazing book called The Power Paradox. And in that particular book, he talks about how power can actually corrupt your brain. Uh, it's a really kind of an amazing thing. Okay, so here, here are a couple, just a couple big things. You've already mentioned them. Injustice. What does justice look like? Sexism, sex discrimination, gender inequality. Uh, that's huge. These are huge problems. Many of you mentioned wealth, economics, poverty, uh, the disparity of wealth. And then, um, in my humble opinion, I think one of the biggest problems we're facing is climate change because everything lives and breathes under this particular heading. Now, to those four things, we could add a myriad of other either subgroups or a different, uh, additional categories. Safety and security, which is the violence question, education. Um, how much... Uh, food and resources there. So resource disparity or resource even distribution, like how you, we have enough resources, but how do we get them to where they need to be? Racial inequality, white supremacy, racism. Um, and then we mentioned religious pluralism and tensions and all those different types of things. So this list could go on and on and on. The, the, the idea is to think about what are the big things that we need to address. And I can imagine just by the exercise alone, there's probably some stress hormones, some cortisol straining through your bloodstream already just by mentioning those things because it's like, oh my goodness, there's, there's a lot wrong with this world or there's a lot of things that we have to tackle. Second question, how do we address them? Like, what is the real how? And I mean this one a little bit more rhetorically because that question's much more open-ended. How you address climate change is probably related, but a little bit distinct from how you address economics, or there, there are probably some overlap. Um, how you address gender inequality or relig- religious strife is, they have some nuances and some distinctives in that. But what I'd like to address or like to bring up and like to wrestle, tell you a little bit about what's been on my mind is this question, even though it's a little bit more general and it's a little bit more ambiguous, I think is actually one of the most foundational questions. Identifying what are the problems is fairly quick and easy, but I noticed as soon as I said, how do we address these problems? There's this almost sense of hesitancy. I think I saw one like, I don't know. Uh, Or there there can be a sense of overwhelmedness. There's a sense of this thing is just too big. The scale of it all can, can be paralyzing. And so when I ask the question, how do we address them? I actually think we're getting at something that's probably even more important and more profound. Identifying the problems is easy. Asking the question, how do you actually address those problems is the more difficult one. Would you be on board with that a little? I mean, and then when you start to go down a path of how you address these difficult questions, what do you have? Lots of opinions and lots of different people who have lots of different perspectives and lots of different ways. So I'm going to propose that this is actually one of the most critical questions. And I'm going to propose that there are really two main categories in which we fall when it comes to addressing some of these biggest, uh, some of these huge, tremendous challenges and issues that we're going to have to face. The first category is going to be excuses. Um, sometimes how we address them is we come up with excuses and we say, well, the reason why that is this is, and then we just list them off. And it's it, it can be all, uh, somewhat of an exercise of self-righteousness, like I know clearly I, ha- I have an understanding, or an exercise in dismissiveness. But there's another way of addressing every single one of these, which is responsibility, which is no longer peering out the window to say there's where the problem is, 
but to, peer, to look into the mirror and to say, wait a second, there is a responsibility that I have to all of these big issues, to all of these challenges. And if I merely look out the window, this is uh, an analogy that I got from Jim Collins many years ago. If I look out the window and say, there's all the problem out there, and, here's, and, and those are, make some excuses for that, I have taken the balance of power and I have shifted it away from myself into other things. But if I look in the mirror and say, Wait, actually, maybe I have an opportunity to be responsible here, then I have regained the ability to actually act and to do something and to be responsible and responsive with all of these things. Here are some examples of how excuses or blaming, I think, works out. I'm sure some of you could come up with some others or maybe have some issues with this. Tribal blaming. Um, I actually have a very, very close person of mine who said to me that the climate change issue is nothing but, and then named a political party and, and said, it's just all that. So the way of addressing the, the issue was just simply to blame a tribe, which was to blame one particular group of people substantiating the righteousness of my particular group of people which is very related to preservationism. I'm protecting myself, and so I don't want to have to uh, work into that. Victimization is like, well, I, I'm, I have no power, or this is the thing that happened to me, and we play the victim card. Now, obviously, there are victims. I want to be very careful here. There are very, very real victims in this world. What I'm talking about is the how to approach these particular issues. And sometimes it manifests itself in victimization. Scapegoating is another one. These are all very related. Binary thinking. Uh, it's black or white. It's this or that. It's one or the other. And there's no ambiguity, no nuance, no uh, discussion or gray area in there. And sometimes no gray matter involved. So um, <laughs> that just came to me. That was amazing. Uh, <laughs> One of the ways in which religious folk do this, making excuses for all of these big challenges, is what I would call divine legislation. And what I mean by that is to say, God is in charge, and God clearly has dictated thus to be, and therefore I now have an excuse to blame God or to look at God or to look at that theology and say, this is just the way things are. And that can happen with Gender inequality, that can happen for economics, that can happen even for climate change. Like, well, God is in You've heard the arguments where it is divine legislation, God is in control, and obviously we believe to a certain degree that God has power, God has uh, omnipotence, God has sovereignty, or whatever those... Uh, people can believe that, and that's, that's wonderful, but it's a way, in some ways, of just excusing the biggest and most important, most critical challenges that we face. Divine legislation. We look at who God is, the world around us, and we just conclude that what God has designed to be is it. Now, flip the script a little bit. What does responsibility look like? Well, responsibility looks like hope. I'm taking charge or I'm taking control because I can see and I can believe that there is something to be had, some sort of redemptive movement or redemptive purpose that is there. Uh, responsibility is about imagination, to actually now utilize all of your creative skills to think about new and creative and innovative ways of tackling. It's about possibilities. It's about nuance. It's about thinking clearly about there's a humanity. And wait a second, 
we have something here. We are a part of something. We can do something about this. The religious response or the religious term or the religious way of thinking about responsibility is not by divine legislation. It's by another word that the Bible uses, wisdom. It is to grant humanity, every single one of us, the ability to think, to process, to debate, to argue, to journey through all sorts of different factors, to figure out what really is the best way to achieve our highest ideals, our highest goals, our highest aims together. And what I'm going to propose to you, this is just like the introduction to Deuteronomy. (laughs) What I'm going to propose to you is that of these two, we love to make excuses. But the highest calling of our humanity is to actually be responsible. I'm going to suggest to you that life is found not simply in the feeling of acceptance, the feeling that we are loved, the feeling that we are part of the family of God, but more so in the urging to be responsible in this world to have a high calling. That, my friends, is where life is. A lot of Christianity and a lot of religion is in this particular space of making you feel good. It's self-help, makes you feel loved, makes you feel uh, over overwhelmed with a sense of acceptance, and that is beautiful, and that is a part of the story. But the reason why I'm getting into this is because the movement of the text and the movement of our journey, the movement of the story that's been passed down to us, does not stop just simply with, I am loved by God, yay. (laughs) There is, I mean, that's like John 3.16, and why do you need the rest of your Bible, right? So, There is so much more to our text. And sometimes it's going to be difficult and hard and challenging. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But what I'm going to propose to you is that all of that other stuff about commandments and rules and laws and regulations is really about giving us responsibility. You are my image, God says, and in my likeness. And you now represent me in this world. This is why you are to do and obey and listen. And what Deuteronomy says around what those commandments are is mind-blowingly brilliant and inspiring, or so I'm going to try to convince you of. Question, which one's easier? Excuse this. Which one comes most natural? Which is the one we like to hold on to? Right. Which is the one that probably actually does the most good in the world, though. Responsibility. Let me, can I, I'm so sorry. Um, I shouldn't apologize. I'm not going to apologize. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. <laughs> these, these, what's happening in this world is really kind of amazing to me. This book, The Uninhabitable Earth, by David Wallace Wells, was an incredible read. 200 pages of it is terrifying and frightening. I'm terribly sorry to tell you. It is a vision of the future that is not too far off distant uh, for our children and our grandchildren and what kind of existence it's going to be. Towards the last 25% of his book, he starts to ask the question, so is there any hope? Is there any possibility? Is there anything that can be done? In other words, he starts to ask the question, okay, are we going to make excuses or are we now going to be responsible? And in that particular part of his book, he writes this, and I cannot, I cannot believe it sometimes when I read stuff like this. If humans are responsible for the problem, they must be capable of undoing it. 
We have an idiomatic name for those who hold the fate of the world in their hands as we do. Gods. Wait, he's, he's writing as a journalist around science, around weather, and he's invoking some sort of ancient mythological term to describe what it is that we can do or how we can think or how we can address the most significant issues of our day. That, to me, is Genesis 1. You are in the image and the likeness of Elohim, of this God. That is what we are. To see this written down in a book about climate change blows my mind. It goes on to say, but for the moment, at least, most of us seem more inclined to run from that responsibility than embrace it or even admit we see it, though it sits in front of us as plainly as a steering wheel. Yeah, we like to make excuses. The responsibility that we hold, the image and likeness of God, that's huge. Of course we run from it. We do not realize how significant and important that is, or sometimes when we do, we can't bear the weight of that responsibility. Uh, in her book, Donut Economics, she's proposing a different way to think about the entire economic structure. Remember, wealth and income inequality and poverty is one of the biggest issues that we are facing, correct? Yes. And in the middle of this particular book, in the middle of the introduction, she proposes seven different ways of rethinking the entire economic structure. And she writes this. What if we started economics not with its long-established theories, but with humanity's long-term goals, and then sought out the economic thinking that would enable us to achieve them? What, what a brilliant idea! <laughs> I read about that somewhere in a book called Genesis not too long ago, about how this entire endeavor was established to see this God exemplified in the humanity of this earth. The name for that being Adam or Adam. And that Adam was commissioned, that humanity was commissioned to care for and take care of this planet. It's amazing to me. Justice. These are just three examples. Preet Bahar's most recent book, Doing Justice, uh, I read the preface and I thought the preface alone just would make humanity so much better. And in the very beginning, he talks about sometimes the, the best way to address current events is to recall first principles, to go back to the very beginning. That's a really good idea. Let's go back to the beginning of what this thing is and what this thing was. And then he writes this, which is, again, just so amazing to me. Smart laws do not assure justice any more than a good recipe guarantees a delicious meal. The law is merely an instrument, and without the involvement of human hands, it is as lifeless and uninspiring as a violin kept in its case. The law cannot compel us to love each other or respect each other. It cannot cancel hate or conquer evil, teach grace, or extinguish apathy. So, I'm reading this stuff in addition to Deuteronomy in preparation for this, and I will tell you all the neurons in my brain are just firing all over the place. It is a hot mess up here. Because this is what's going on. What are the biggest challenges that we're facing? And then how do we address them? We have injustice, climate change, inequality, economics, all sorts of things that we have to address. And what I'm seeing authors, thoughtful, brilliant, studied authors and thinkers around these issues, they are doing something that sounds really familiar to me as somebody who has studied this text, the Bible, for years. David Wallace Wells is suggesting that we think almost theologically and mythologically about who we are 
and our role and our responsibility. Kate Raworth is suggesting that humanity and our experience of humanity should be at the center of our economic policies. And Preet Bharara is suggesting that we can put as many laws on the books as you want, but they will not change human hearts. And the issue is human hearts. And I'm going to suggest audaciously, my friends, all of what we just did there, and you could probably go to many, many other disciplines, is exactly why we need to read Deuteronomy. Because back then, they had some pretty significant issues and challenges that they had to face. There's even arguments that climate change was one of them, changing weather, changing patterns, agriculture, migration patterns, etc. Definitely corrupt powers. I mean, who's more corrupt than Pharaoh? Uh, definitely all sorts of issues about gender inequality. And, and it was definitely a different time and place. But they were dealing with very, very similar things. And what is laid out in our particular text is astounding and brilliant. And is going to give us some insight into what we, as followers of Jesus, and as members of this particular way, should probably adhere to, heed to, listen to, pay close attention to as we move forward into our era. I mentioned earlier that Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy actually means second law, but the original is going to be these sayings. And I do not like the phrase second law, and I will tell you why in a second, because law, as Prebhara said in his book, does not invoke the responsibility that is needed to address these issues. And if we look at Deuteronomy just as a law, divine legislation, it comes down, this is what God said, we have to obey it, then we might be missing something much more profound of what this text and what these authors were doing. And if we can do that, then we're going to get to the foundational plan, some sort of agenda, some sort of framework philosophy for then how we address all of these issues. So I'm going to try to address the how. How do we tackle our most critical and important issues of our day? How do we do that? And I'm going to propose to you that the wisdom that is shared in the book of Deuteronomy gives us a foundation and a platform for that. But in order to do that, we've got to do some deconstructing. I have to, in my life, and I'm going to suggest you come along with me, get out of my brain the idea that the Bible is a divine command of legislation of do's and don'ts of laws and commands and decrees that you are supposed to follow and you're supposed to do so that you become a good person and go to the happy place and not to the sad place. We have to kind of get that out of our brain. That's hard to do because in our entire culture, our, our very culture, we have up on the walls of Congress, does anybody know? We have a bunch of lawmakers. All around the edge, there are faces of lawmakers throughout history, famous ones that have been influential in our particular way of constructing government. Who is dead center in the middle? Moses. And every time somebody stands up at that podium and gives some sort of address to the American people, the face, the one face that is staring right back at them is this guy. Very sternly. <laughs> and fascinatingly enough, he is the one person that is centered and everyone looks to him. And if you go to the um, architects of, of uh, the Capitol, the website, they say Moses. And I love that they put 
somewhere between 1350 and 1250 BC. Like he lived 100 years. That was great. Hebrew prophet and lawgiver. Transformed wandering people into a nation and received the Ten Commandments. So encoded in our culture is this idea that the entire text that we have inherited comes from somebody who has given a divine law. Uh, the 11 other faces on the east side all look left. The 11 faces on the west side all look right. The only one that faces forward is Moses. There is something within our culture, encoded in our thinking, encoded in our worldview, that this book that we are about to study over the next couple weeks is divine legislation and sets the rule of law for how we live. And what I'd like for us to do is reconsider and think, maybe that's not what this text was intended to do. This is a... John Walton has written some amazing books entitled The Lost World. And what he does is he tries to go back into the ancient world and ask some questions like, how did they write law back then? And what does that mean for us today? Um, just in summary, some of his quotes that I think are helpful. We are going to suggest that finding what we can consider biblical answers to social issues is not as straightforward as it seems because contrary to what many interpreters imagine, the Bible is not a compilation of propositional revelation, a collection of facts expressing divine affirmations. It's not a book that says, do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. Now, we read it that way. Don't murder. Don't lie. And then we repeat it, and we write it down on our papers, and we tell that to our children when they misbehave, or our spouses. And, you know, we, we clearly recognize this as a law. Here's what they write. Instead of relying on legislation, a formal body of written law enacted by an authority, order, the society, was achieved through the wisdom of those governed, who governed society. My friends, hang on to that one point. How we create an ordered society, the best solutions for the greatest problems that we face, is not going to be relied upon by divine legislation, by God just saying this, and so be it. It is going to be enacted in the same theme and genre of Deuteronomy by the wisdom of those who govern it. Wisdom, not legislation, wisdom. Can I give you some examples? I'm terribly sorry for the inappropriateness of this one. I'm just reading the Bible. Let me give you some examples for why. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, it says... No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Divine command, clearly. I don't know if you see what I wrote in the margin right there. I'm like, okay. And if we see Deuteronomy merely as a divine command and divine legislation, what are we doing with that? And you have all, I'm sure, had conversations with people who say, well, the Bible clearly says... The Bible does pretty clearly say there's not much translation difference. Like, I can't tell you, like, well, the Hebrew really says, no, it says that. <laughs> so if it's divine legislation, it's just a clear do's and don'ts, then we're kind of in trouble with this, or we just dismiss it, or we just ignore it. Give you another example. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I am going to eat some meat because you wish to eat meat. You may eat meat whenever you have the desire. 
I just found my life verse. Yes. So when we talk about divine legislation, if we look at it merely as this, we have problems. One particular passage we don't know what to do with. The other one we put on the bumper sticker when we make our life verse. And is that really what the text was designed to do? That's the question. Thank you for answering, Erica. Well done. (laughs) This in turn indicates that when we turn to apply the message of Israel's covenant documents to ourselves, we should think in terms of trying to understand the reputation that Yahweh intended to establish for himself. In other words, what this text is doing is not just divine legislation. It's setting up a different agenda. It's setting up the question, will we, as the people of God, be representatives of this God in this world? And how will we be those representatives? We should not think in terms of something that Yahweh wants to give to us or something that he expects to receive from us, which is this transactional model. That's not what this text is designed to do. It is not just setting up moral commands and divine laws. It's doing something bigger. Let me share with you a couple examples of what I think is happening here. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 9 through 10. But take care and watch yourselves closely as, to, as neither to forget the things that your eyes have seen, nor to let them, let them slip from your mind all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how you once stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. In other words, one of the big themes of this book of Deuteronomy is remember and pass on your story. It's not just a divine, tell your children this story. No, there, there's a wisdom there. There's something much bigger there. Do not forget your story. Remember what happened. By the way, this is phenomenally wise and applicable to you. As you progress down your life, as you deconstruct and question certain constructs of religion, as you learn new things about science and technology and try to integrate them with faith, do not forget your story. Don't forget where you've come from and pass on that entire story to your children. There's another beautiful passage here. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy needy neighbor in your land. Now, again, we can see that as, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. Or if you take a look at the full context and the full agenda of what's going on, you could come away with understanding, wait a second, the wisdom here is to consider carefully what kind of community you wish to nurture. And if we just see it as a command, okay, do this, okay, I'm done then we're missing the greater agenda of what's happening in this text. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, I am making this covenant sworn by an oath, not only with you who stand here with us today before the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here with us today. So this whole agenda that we're doing, it's not just for you, you who are listening. It's for those who are not even here. I think about that all the time whenever I give messages and, and speak. I am I am painfully aware that there are people not in the room, not listening to the podcast or whatever, for whom I also have to consider. And in this particular passage, there are people that were not with the Israelites when God was giving the covenant and the instructions and this wisdom. They were designed, they were commanded to think deeply about what was to come after them. They were to think about the long view. And by the way, there's even very direct passages in this uh, text that suggest when your children ask you, you are to tell them the story. And if that's 
not enough to convince you that there is something deeper going on here. The very end of the book ends with this call. After all of the things that we're going to read about in Deuteronomy, it ends on this note. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. It doesn't end by saying, just do what I've told you to do. I've set before you a choice. Life and death, blessings and curses. Which means that what emerges out of Deuteronomy is in your hands. It's not in God's hands. It's in your hands. And then he says, choose. It's almost as if God is begging you, please choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him, for that means life to you and length of days so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore, Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, this entire agenda, choose life. Choose life. The very end of this, the author writes, all of these things that I've given you, they're not beyond the sea that somebody said, who's going to cross it? Who's going to give these laws for us? We need these laws. No. The word is actually very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's right here. In other words, the word, this, all of this, this entire agenda, you already have. It's there. It's here. Now choose life. Be wise. My friends, this is just a brief summary of some of the huge themes that are going to happen throughout Deuteronomy. Remember, pass on your story. Consider what kind of community you wish to nurture. Think about the long view and choose life. And if you engage in that kind of way of living, to deploy wisdom in this world, not just blind obedience to moral commands, but if you do that, then you can't make excuses anymore. You have to take responsibility. And I would suggest to you that by taking the responsibility to think wisely about this world, we will actually live the very life that God has called us to live. And so much of faith and religion is constructed in a way as like, this is just what God said. So I do it. And of course I make a silly voice every time I say it. I don't know why. I don't know why that voice comes out. Deuteronomy is not just a second law then. Not just telling you what you need to do. I'm going to propose to you, my friends, Deuteronomy is wisdom and is trying to show us that there are some deeper, more profound motivations and agendas that are living within all of us. And you have the responsibility and you have the call and the commission and the ability to actually live out and make decisions based upon all of what we're going to study to achieve the greatest kind of life that there is even in the face of the greatest problems and the greatest challenges and the most critical issues that we face today. That's my opening salvo for what Deuteronomy is. It's not divine legislation. It's not law. It's not a list of things to do and not do. It's wisdom. It, and it's calling us to think deeply about ourselves and about our world. Any questions? How do I navigate the tension between law and wisdom? Uh, I think we're going to find out. One of, the, one of the flips of the idea, this is my first take, and I'm sure there's other thoughts, is there's a lot of 
obey in the book of Deuteronomy. Do and obey. And we will come away with it if we look at it from a legislative mind. It's like, okay, I'm supposed to do and obey. But what we don't see and we, we may not understand is the whole point of Deuteronomy is for us to know and understand this deep wisdom. How do you know and understand deep wisdom unless you actually do and obey? Activity is what promotes understanding. And so what the divine commands are going to do is you need to engage in this work of justice. Do this. And when you do this, you will know personally, viscerally, experientially what I mean when I say this command to love. That's a little bit of how I navigate that. There are those of us who can sit, quote unquote, sit up in the ivory tower and just think and pontificate all day. For those of you who have sat with somebody in the hospital, who have held the hand of somebody who has gone through a tragedy, you know what the command to love and to be compassionate and kind and what justice is. You know, for the, I, we know there's people in our community and friends of ours that visit those who are in jail, do Bible studies for those who are incarcerated. Somebody just thinking about law doesn't know what justice really, really is and is not. So when you do and you obey, you get a level of knowledge and understanding about these principles that you cannot get by just thinking about a divine legislation. So that's a little bit of how I've navigated this over the last couple weeks and months of of thinking and pontificating. Fantastic question, though. Thank you. I love it. Yeah. I will not repeat that for the podcast. <laughs> the, the short answer is yes. And we will probably get into what are the cultic practices and what is the symbolism around things that are super, super private and taboo to us, but are super, super important to them. And when you are in a culture where generations and progeny and children are not only you know, just a joy to have, but they are your lifeblood, your inheritance, and they are your reputation that goes forward, then that naturally translates into parts of our bodies from which they come. And so the ancients had an understanding of those parts, very, very different from, we are hypersexualized, obviously. We, I don't need to tell anybody in this room about that. We are hypersexualized, and we, as a result of that, we are hyper taboo about sex and about body parts, etc. The ancients didn't have that, right? They understood things much more in a generational line, much more in a religious cultic line, like what, the, what those things meant to their inheritance, to their reputation, uh, and to their, um, their stature within the community that was going forward. So we, we will hopefully get to that. Thank you for phrasing the question that way. That was beautiful. Okay, my friends, uh, I'm going to ask the team to... Um, lead us in uh, some music, and uh, we're going to come to communion, and I think, thanks for hanging out with me today. I really appreciate it. I look forward to more questions and discussions. Communion after a message like that is the question of, are you just doing this because God told you to? Or is there something to be learned, some sort of wisdom about the practice of a physical piece of bread and a 
physical drop of juice being ingested and what does that mean? And if we can begin to think deeply about all those things, then we will begin to journey into the wisdom that I think Deuteronomy is calling us into. For on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we sing, my friends, you're invited to participate in communion, which is this sacred tradition and sacrament to remember who Jesus is and was and how he lived out this wisdom in this world. And so that we too can participate in that same agenda, even here today in the 21st century. If you're able, please stand for a benediction. My friends, may you, in the greatest challenges that you and we face together, drink in deeply of this divine wisdom that commissions us to think deeply about the kind of people we want to be, the futures we want to create, and the life that we are cultivating all around us. May we be, once again, captivated by this wisdom. Lean into it. And may the world see just how profound this wisdom is for the greatest life that we could possibly have for now and the future that is to come. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.